3617 response to report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, welcome to the Corner Talk podcast, the only podcast on iTunes dedicated to the men and women working the field of of course, death investigation. And I am your host for the next hour, Darren Dake. If you're new to the show, it's the new year, 2018. We're only a couple of episodes into 2018. And if you're new to the show, welcome aboard. Give us three episodes. You may not find a fit here, but sometime within three episodes, I guarantee you'll find a fit. And you are welcome here. And uh, you returning listener, who uh, we've got a lot of returning listeners, I appreciate each and every one of you. I love hearing from you. I love hearing, getting emails from you, questions, comments, things like that. I appreciate uh, when you do that, I'm able to email back and talk to you and things like that. And I do very much appreciate uh, any comments and feedback you can give me. Of course, with feedback, I haven't asked for a while. And uh, beginning 2018, I'll ask if you if you're listening to this on the new on Apple podcast or iTunes, they used to be called uh, Stitcher or any of those. Go to your podcast player and leave a rating and review. Whatever you think the show is worth, what value we're providing, what I'm providing, is it is it one star, two star, three star? I hope it's a five star. But what is it? And leave a rating and a review because it helps others coming along behind you uh, to decide whether or not to give the show a try. And if you're finding benefit from the training that we do here and the conversations that we have, then so will they. Now, today's show, we've got Dr. Catherine Ramsland on the show. Now, Dr. Ramsland is a consultant. She's also a professor for DeSales University. Uh, she's a psychology professor as well, and she's an author of 62 different books in the area of psychology, a, a lot to do with death investigation, things like that. And she teaches a course there called Psychological Sleuthing. Now, today we're going to have her on to talk about what she focuses on, which is the psychological aspects of death investigation. And one of her latest books is called The Psychology of Death Investigation. Now, we very little bit get into psychological autopsy because we remember we talked about that a few weeks ago. And today we're not going to talk about psychological autopsy as much as the psychology around a death investigation, not only from the investigator's point of view, but also from the suspect's point of view or the offender, uh, maybe the victim of a suicide, victim of autoerotic. Uh, we're going to get into a little bit of a serial killer mindset uh, and then what may shape a serial killer's attitude and the way they do the things they do, maybe from an early uh, childhood, what happens there. We talk about BTK a little bit and Jeffrey Dahmer. We get into a lot of things about psychology of death and killers only scratch the surface, but it's a really good conversation. And so we'll get into that in just a minute. I do want to make a couple of announcements. The new book that Anita Brooks and I wrote, Code, C-O-D-E, it's on sale for pre-order. We'll ship late January. You can get a, a, the book today through the next couple of weeks of pre-order, and you'll get an autographed copy of that, the first 100. We're almost to that limit, so you better hurry. But go to thinlinecode.com. That's thinlinecode.com. And if you're a police officer, firefighter, EMS, paramedic, coroner, 911 call taker, dispatcher, this book is about you. There are multiple chap sections in there, one for each of those five categories, and we have real life situations in those. It's based on true stories uh, of 
not only the personnel, but the victims and their, how they reacted to it and their family. And we talk about all kinds of things that occur, not only with the, with the scene or the case, but how it affects people uh, personally uh, with divorce or with uh, suicide and things like that. So it's really, really an interesting read. And you can find it at thinlinecode.com. Now, one of the things that you we always want to remind you of here is some training coming up. And when this comes out live, so to speak, it's the the 8th, I believe, of January. And the next Medical Legal Death Investigation online class will start January 13th. So only a few days from now, if you hear it when it first comes out. But, of course, we have one every quarter. So the next one will be April 14th of 2018. So you watch for that. If you if you can't get registered for the January 13th one, then go over uh, right after this class starts. Uh, April will open up and you can get registered for the April class. We do have a payment plan option if that helps you. And then if you do like classroom training, you want to come to Missouri to our new facility and take the medical legal death investigation course. It's a three-day, very long days, very intense. Uh, we have a lot of interaction, uh, but you know, it, it, it's you'll have fun. We we always have fun at these courses. We've we've taught we teach them teach them twice a year, but it is a full day. We do do a lot of uh, cover a lot of stuff, and we uh, have a lot of fun. We always bring people in from several different states, and so you're able to network and meet people in different industries and different states coming in for this medical legal death investigation class. It's a level one class. Level two will be in July. Those of you that have taken the level one last year and the one to take the level one in March will be available to take the level two. And then that's going to be in Jan- July. Dates haven't been set yet, but I will get that to you. And then we have an, uh, the classroom. That classroom starts March 19th. So if you want to come to, to Missouri and take that class, March 19th, January 13th is the online 40-hour course. But you can go to find all of that at cornertalk.com. Go to the training section there. You can go to the online classroom. You can go to Death Investigation Academy site. All of that is there. And the last thing I'll say about training, and we'll get into this conversation with Dr. Ramsland, if you have a platform where maybe you're an author, maybe you're a blogger, uh, maybe you have your own podcast. I know there's, there's police and firemen out there to have podcasts. If you have any of that and you would like to be an affiliate for our training, here's how that works. We'll give you a special code. You advertise the classes. You put a link on your website, whatever, to say, hey, we offer classes here. If you agree with our training and you agree that it's good, we just need to get it out there to more people. And then uh, you can earn, a, you know, just like any you know, other affiliate program, you know, you earn a, a little bit of money for doing that. Uh, I split that with you. It doesn't cost a student anymore. It doesn't cost you anymore. Uh, we're just trying to get as many people uh, exposed to our training as possible uh, because uh, what we're being told, uh, me and, and Angie and the ones on our team, the other instructors, is that we are setting a standard for death investigation. Uh, we've got several states now that are starting to use our training as their basic training. Uh, maybe if they don't make the state training, they take this. This is their only other option. Um, they're using it for continuing education. So uh, sometimes it's hard to find continuing education, quality, ABMDI approved. We're being used for that. The problem we have, though, is getting the word out. It's a small world, but really this is a great big world. And and when new people find out the training and take the training and they really enjoy the training, we can have excellent, excellent feedback. I just need you to get the word out that this is here so we can all be better trained and all come up our standards of training. And again, by you helping spread the word, then 
you know, we'll help you with either some courses of your own, maybe some courses for your department or something. We'll work something out just to help you spread the word. So that's the affiliate program. You can email us on that and we can work out those details. So without any further delay, let's get into this conversation with Dr. Ramsell. It's a very good conversation. You're really going to enjoy it. And you know what? She's a, she's a great conversationalist. She's a great lady uh, and extremely smart. So I know you can get a lot out of this. And then all of her contact information, Her uh, she does have a website. She does have some things that she's able to consult on and, and different things, all of her books, on things like that. Well, katherineramsland.com, but that'll be in the show notes, so you can find everything we talk about in the show notes of today's episode. All right, so without any further delay, here's the conversation I had with Dr. Ramsland. Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. All right, joining me live here on the show today is Dr. Catherine Ramsland. I pre-introduced her just a little bit, kind of told you what her credentials are. Today, we're going to talk about uh, some of the uh, books that she has written, certainly on the psychology of death investigation. Dr. Ramsland, welcome to the show today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I really was excited to get you on the show. I mean, you have written a lot of books. You've written, uh, I think this makes your number 62. So you're certainly not uh, a novice to, to uh, book writing, of course, but you always write in, in the genre of death investigation uh, area and psychology of death. Is that not true? Or do you do you go uh, into pretty something much. else? Um, I've written some novels and some other things as well. But yeah, everything's pretty dark. Right, pretty dark. Yeah, that, that would describe <laughs> the life of our investigators. Pretty dark. That is true. So, you know, before we get into some of the books here, how long have you been a professor at DeSales University, and 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 what got you into teaching? Is that what you've always wanted to do, or? Uh, I, well, I've taught at different universities. I taught philosophy at Rutgers for fifteen years, when and then I broke away and and got a degree in forensic psychology, and I've been at DeSales for. 16 years. This is my 16th year there. Um, I, I did not aspire to be a professor, and I never aspired to be a writer, and yet these things happen. Yeah, yeah that's sometimes, especially when you're, when you're good in that topic and interested in it. Now, you're, you know, you said a little bit ago that most of the stuff you write is kind of dark. Well, you're interested in uh, the death investigation side, serial killers, and things like that. Is there something that has brought you over the years to be interested in that? Is it just the psychology or have you just kind of always been interested in it maybe since you were a kid or something? Well, um, we did have a serial killer in my hometown when I was growing up. So watching that happen, and that was even before they were using the phrase serial killer, but watching that unfold, um, I think fascinated me. But nevertheless, I didn't really go into any kind of forensic stuff at, at that point. Uh, I think really it kind of grew gradually and circuitously, if I can use that word, um, I, as things came my way for writing opportunities, I began to explore more and to educate myself more, and then even getting involved in actual death investigations. Um, I co-wrote a few books with people whose cases were about death investigations, and then began to consult, do some trainings do the teaching, and I think just little by little, I kept going into it. My, my expertise, I would say, is really serial killers because I've done the most with that. I wrote for the Court TV website for um, probably eight years, and so I was writing for their crime library, um, I guess, collection, 
and I wrote, you know, over 200 stories for them on serial murders. So, so that really got me into the, that side of things. And the death investigation came out of a class that I taught at the sales that I, de- that I designed. And then I began to do consulting for coroners in my state. Yeah, so you've had a long career in this. I know that I've looked at your blog on psychology today, and you know, of course you've written a lot of blogs there about a lot of very interesting topics. So I want to get into maybe some of the. Of course, there's no way we can talk about everything within the few minutes yeah. that we have. Um, but you you are a wealth of information, you know, not only just to the students in your classes, but also to the death investigation field as a whole. There, you have a lot of resources uh, in your blogs. Uh, of course, uh, anybody can go there and read those. But the books, of course, as well, have a lot of information. Now, today I want to talk a little bit about the psychology of death investigation. Uh, kind of an interesting name, uh, but what is it? What is this new book, Psychology of Death Investigation? What's it all about? What's its basic premise? Okay, well, that, it's kind of an interesting way how this book came about. Um, I teach a class called Psychological Sleuthing, and I've had to cobble together materials because there is no textbook for the kinds of stuff I do. I have I've co-written some things with FBI profilers, so I had that stuff. Um, but I also got very in- interested in the psychological autopsy methodology, and I got the certifications that, from the American Association of Suicidology, and I, I do that probably more than I do any other behavioral analysis type of thing as a consultant. And, and I did not have a good book for this class, I happened to be at the CRC book display at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences a couple of years ago, and I, talk, I was talking to the editor, and he asked me, you know, what book would you want to write? And I said, I guess I've been waiting for somebody to write a book for my course, and um, this is, so, so I'd like to write that. And he said, okay, that sounds like a great idea. And so I wrote it. I, and so primarily it ended up being a textbook for my course, but I'm not much, I don't really like using textbooks because I don't like the passive kind of tense that that textbooks often use. I like case analysis. I like really moving stuff forward. I like applying cognitive psychology to investigations. So I, I created a book that I thought would be very useful for my course, but at the same time, it also is useful in the trainings that I do with coroners and with law enforcement on some of the errors that can occur when people make decisions too fast or they use cognitive shortcuts or they don't look at all the evidence or they misinterpret the evidence. So this book actually works that way as well because I have a whole chapter on staging. I have a chapter on really odd things that you might encounter (laughs) in a death investigation that might surprise you. I look at um, the full... All the all the way back to the 1950s when Edwin Schneidman founded suicidology and founded this psychological autopsy and and uh, became part of their psycho the mode conferences they had there and continue to have by the way for the L.A. County Coroner's Office. So between learning all the history and methodology of that as well as behavioral profiling uh, and and looking at the legal issues of both when you take something like this into court. That gave me plenty of material for writing a book like this. 
So, and then, and the psychology, the, the psychological autopsy, of course, that's, we've had a, a show on it a while back and we halfway kind of understand what that is, but you're going in also into behavioral profile, which I do agree is, is a part of psychological autopsy. Um, but this behavioral profiling, like you just touched on with, with scene staging, uh, would that also go into ser- uh, serial killer's mind, things like that? What, what are you meaning by this behavioral profiling? Yeah, well, the, the first, about psychological autopsy, typically that is looking at the potential that a death is a suicide because um, it's, an, it's ambiguous. It could go, at, you know, in many different ways, and you're looking for evidence of a state of mind that would um, come down in favor of a suicide. And if that doesn't occur, it might be a homicide um, or, or any other thing, but it might be a homicide, in which case behavioral profiling comes into it. And people are of the mistaken notion that only the FBI does behavioral profiling. They, they have popularized it with things like Mindhunter and, and uh, Silence of the Lambs, but, but it was psychologists who started the behavioral profiling. Uh, and as a result, we have learned things about crime scene analysis in terms of behavior as evidence and behavior as, as the foundation for reconstruction. So that's what, what it is. There's, there's really a distinction between the two different approaches. Right. Well, and I could, I could see how that would be uh, to, look at a, to look at a murder or the, a serial killer or even a mass shooting. You're looking, you're not, you're looking at what their behavioral psychology is leading up to and during the, uh, a mass shooting event, similar to the theaters or even in Las Vegas, right? Well, you could be, but that's, now that's looking more at um, motive. If you, if you do actually know the, who the person is, so someone like Stephen Padden in Las Vegas, you're, you're trying to figure out things about his background. That's, that's actually a different process than either of these two because with a psychological autopsy, you're not really sure what kind of, of death you have, with a, and you, you're really looking at the evidence for suicide with a behavioral profile, you don't know who the person is who perpetrated the crime. Um, but so with something like a mass murder, if you do know, and especially what, what I would call a coercive suicide, where someone's suicidal, but they're going to take out a lot of people with them. Um, now you're looking m- more at a case analysis. You're, you're doing something like a risk evaluation. Uh, what are the chances of this guy from what we know having, you know, having red flags that people should have seen. So that's, that's a little bit different process too. And, and we can actually use that in behavioral analysis for people like healthcare serial killers because, um, and I've written a whole book just on healthcare serial killers, because they tend to be very similar in their MO and in, the, in their reasons and their motives for why they do it. And so we can actually get a constellation of red flags that would allow us to do what we might call prospective profiling. Typically, behavior profiling is after the fact. A crime is committed. You go look at the behavior of the scene or, or several scenes, um, whereas prospective profiling is really trying to do a risk evaluation. What are the chances that this person here might go on to either kill people or continue to kill people? And would that be if you're having patients die, let's say, in a healthcare facility, and maybe you're trying to, to 
could it be a serial killer and there's five people that's possible? You talk about maybe taking those, dissecting the minds of those five, so to speak, and and thinking, well, this could be your primary suspect, is, or or are they? Yeah, you, this you could do that stuff? with healthcare serial killers. You could actually look at the the things that they say, the complaints they might have, the fact that they always want the night shift, or they might have told little white lies on on their um, when they first applied for the job that don't seem to be motivated by anything. Uh, there's a number of things that we have for healthcare serial killers that that could help. They wouldn't identify the person as a killer, but they they would allow people to start documenting evidence and putting surveillance on a potential killer uh, and looking for further evidence. So it isn't that the red, you know, like any any kind of prediction. It's not that you can definitively say somebody's going to be violent, but you can you can certainly look at the likelihood and make comparisons between different types of people to see who's more likely to be, be violent based on what we've seen in the past. We have a lot of cases that show us certain types of temperaments, um, certain types of preparation, so that we could actually take what we do know from past cases and look at people to identify um, potential suspects. You wouldn't identify a killer that way, but you certainly could now start documenting evidence. Well, and it would certainly narrow the field it to, would. Who, to who you'd that's want what, to look that's at. That's what profiling is about. Essentially, profiling is simply about um, trying to narrow the pool of suspects and also to be able to make predictions as, as best as we can. But we, we know that that is not a definitive science. Uh, like DNA or something, it's it's not that we we do everything by probability analysis where human behavior is concerned. And we look at what's the highest probability of being correct about our assessment, um, and we know that mistakes are going to be made, errors will be made because people will always surprise you. But um, we're the, you're trying to do the best you can to make people as safe as possible. Yeah, that's right. And and you had mentioned, I'll put you on the spot a little bit because I don't know if you have an example of this, but a while ago you were talking about some of the stuff the book covers and, and some of the psychology. And you'd mentioned some of the things that you've taught on is, you know, errors that coroners and death investigators have made, certainly in maybe going too fast or, or not looking at a thing that could be staged. Give us an example or an idea of maybe not the maybe not the most obvious, but what are some things that coroners, besides slow down, death investigators should really think about when they're looking at a scene not to omit something? Well, I mean, I, the coroner I work with is very good about this. In fact, we did a study on suicide notes that is in this book. And one of the things he said to me when, I, when we first started working together, um, that's the Northampton County Coroner in Pennsylvania, is that when he comes to a scene, he, he puts his hands in his pocket to remind himself to look, to look at everything, to look around, to see to get perspective on it before he starts making any decisions um, and to think about it. But one of my favorite cases in the book is the one I opened the book with, and that is a case in England where two men were found, three weeks apart, were found in a cemetery. Both had been propped up in a, in a similar way in about the same position and location. And in the hand of the second one was a suicide note uh, talking about how sorry he was that you know he had they had had some drugs while they were having sex and and 
he was so sorry that the other guy had died, and, and so he killed himself. And that, and that was a stage scene, because he didn't kill the other guy. They were both victims of a serial killer, but the police officers there closed two cases right away without seeing, is it his handwriting? Did they know each other? And who's the guy that he basically says in a P.S., don't blame the guy I was with the other night? Why didn't they even investigate that? I mean, they did nothing. They just accepted it's a, suicide, it's a suicide note, so it's a suicide and case closed. And it wasn't, because then the guy went on to kill someone else. They got him on CCT camera, and he confessed that he had written a suicide note to set up the other guy for, for killing the first guy. Wow. So that's a great case to teach about cognitive errors. Yes, and that and that seems so obvious, you know. Going talking about it now, who would make that mistake? But but uh, yes, obviously things like that are made. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I always teach if you find a suicide note, be you know question it because people who commit suicide don't leave notes. Of course, we know I, we know they do. But you know, you're going to work a lot of suicides, more suicides that don't have notes than does. Right. Um, and so, if they leave a note, you know, you know, you'd really look at that note. But, uh, but, but, yeah. So, and yet, so I, and yet I've heard death investigators say, if it's a note, it's a suicide. I'm like, what? Right. Are you talking about? And also, some things that look like notes are not notes. And so that was one of the reasons we did this suicide note study. In fact, that's at one point he said before we started doing it, he said, "Well, all of my suicide notes are genuine." And I said, "How do you know?" If you don't have any criteria for making the distinction between non, you know, suicide notes that are faked or not even suicide notes, how would you know how to make that distinction? And he and he immediately said, "Oh my God, we have to do this study." Right, <laughs> right. And you know, I'm going to park here just for a second. You know, the interesting point about suicide notes because you don't always know, and you the investigation itself has to determine suicide or not. The, the note is there, and it could be a piece of evidence, uh, but it may or may not be the deciding factor. But, you know, I, I remember working a suicide a year or so ago where a, a young girl had made a claim against uh, a, a man for some sexual inappropriateness, and uh, they lived in the same house. The the gentleman committed suicide, had left a note, but and he was writing this note out about, you know, I know that this is the, the DA of this, and they're going to send me back to prison. And he just went on and on, kind of rambling. But then in the end uh, of the note, he started getting really big letters and started saying, and make sure that, and mentioned her name, seize yeah. me before you cut me down, because she's the one that caused all of this. And as he wrote those last like couple sentences, he got bigger and bigger and bigger in his handwriting, like he was angry and he was writing real big. And psychologically, that's got to mean something. It does. And, and that's what you look at. You look not just at the content, you look at the form, you look at changes, um, you compare uh, other types of writing to the note. There's a lot that you look at behaviorally. You don't just look at what was said in the note. And, you know, and a lot of people, as you know, a lot of people assume that as someone writing a suicide note will explain themselves. Of course they won't explain themselves. Very few ever explain themselves. And so that's one of the reasons we wanted to look at this is because there are a lot of myths out there about suicide notes and about suicidal behavior. And that, that's exactly right. You look at the many layers of behavior, not just the superficial layer.
Right. And then, you know, we've had some notes where we've had statement analysis experts look at it as if, you know, as if a witness is writing a statement, they right. can look at it and say, you know, this witness isn't being truthful. There, there's, I, I know very little about how that works, but, but, uh, <laughs> You know, the statement analysis is, is is a field in and of itself, you know, but yes. I've had suicide notes. They've looked at those. And of course, they're a little different because of the suicide part of it. But they're able to discern some stuff for me over the years that have made sense. They, they've they been able to yes. point some things out. OK, see this or this or this or this. This means this. And we've determined that they've been actual notes based on multiple things. But that uh, ha- not the uh, handwriting analysis. We've had to do that a time or two. But I'm talking about the, the statement analysis. Uh, yes. That can be good to determine if it's, uh, you know, truthful. Is it some coming from somebody that's really under duress or whatever? Right. Well, you're looking at things like um, how detailed are they are in certain. In, in some suicide notes, as you know, I'm like two two words long. But right. some we've had suicide journals. I saw one that was 800 pages long. Oh my! Uh, and we we even had one that was a needlepoint suicide note, six foot six foot long. <laughs> <laughs> they planned that for a while. That's for sure, and it was angry. Uh, so it was a very, you know, there's very interesting types of notes. But if you have a long enough one, you can start looking at what they're being detailed about, and then how they become vague, or you know, the grammatical changes, the spelling changes. There are a lot of things you can apply statement analysis to if you have a long enough note. But you're definitely going to have short notes that are one line long. Uh, we have text, unsent texts that are suicide notes, um, all, you know, all kinds of stuff. And that, that's one of the real things I'm really excited about with this book is, is that I got to put all this suicide note study into this. And there really are some fascinating things that people have done with their suicide notes. Right. So, so the psychology of death investigation, you cover suicide notes. You do touch a little bit on psycho- psychological autopsy. You talk a little bit about cognitive, um, Cognitive psychology, cognitive questioning, that things like that. Explain to us what, what cognitive psychology is when it comes to death investigation. Well, cognitive psychology acknowledges that the human brain is, is you know, an amazing organ, but limited in terms of um, it, we tend to take mental shortcuts to cut out, you know, just to get along day to day and cut out the, the abundance of information that comes at us. We, so, we, so when we tend to take mental shortcuts, if those shortcuts uh, are in place when we're doing an investigation, we might not be as mindful of, of some of the information as we should be, which can, if, if we make judgments too fast, for example, uh, tunnel vision, um, where, where you're narrowing down your investigation too fast, you might lose evidence, especially if it's transitory evidence. Um, cognitive uh, confirmation bias, where you make a determination before you've really had a chance to look at the evidence, and then all you do is look for evidence that confirms. That's, that's an error that has showed up in a lot of cases. So I go through a number of the mo- most common cognitive uh, errors and shortcuts that show up in investigations, which is not to say people are to blame, but it is to help teach people um, you know, who has the tendency to make quick judgments? You've got to, you've got to put your hands in your pockets and back off and think. Uh, if your tendency is to overthink and to a- analyze everything to death, you have to understand that these investigations need to move along. So we're really looking at uh, traits and characteristics of the human mind that everybody shares and that can be 
corrected in investigations to make investigations work better. And some of that is in how we ask a question. And or, or absolutely, and how we're talking to the person now. And one of the things that I've always thought psychological, um, co- or cognitive psychology, or cognitive questioning. Let's go there. Cognitive questioning would be, of course, open ended questions, uh, but also getting them to recount uh, their their statement in a story form. In a well, that's that's the cognitive interview. Um, that you're talking about, and right. that is exactly right, to try to allow for them to um, see see the experience holistically the way they experienced it, and sometimes even to use almost a trance-like state so that they can relax and allow the details to come and tell it in a story so that, so that you then might, if you suspect deception, you might ask them to tell it backwards uh, because that adds what we call a cognitive load um, that that step I didn't get into as much in this particular book, except that um, with a, a psychological autopsy, it's very important how you ask questions of people, and it's very important that you watch for signals of deception, of people hiding something, of people trying to deflect, or people might who might be staging a scene to look like a suicide or look like an accident. Um, you know, especially when you have something like an autoerotic accident. Where people are embarrassed, you know, they they don't want anyone to know that their loved one died doing something, you know, perversely sexual in their minds. Um, so you have to always be watching when you ask people questions for uh, the behavior that they display when they're answering. And part of that's going to be about you, the the person doing the questioning. How skillful are you at getting information and also watching? at the same time, so that you're making notes about potential deception or deflection, especially somebody who's staged a, a scene. I have a whole chapter on staging, which I, I really love this chapter because people are so clever. Um, and it's not just people staging a homicide as a suicide, but you have people staging suicides as homicides. And some of the things they do are just astounding to try so that their loved ones can collect insurance. Well, yeah. I mean, one of my favorites is this one in Texas where they they found the guy. He he was bound and shot, and and uh, no gun around anywhere, right? So obviously, this is a homicide, right? Uh, except that they then found the gun that with two helium balloons snagged on a cactus, and realized that one of the cops had had seen CSI where a, a guy was trying to do exactly that, and he wanted the gun to float away so that people would think it was a homicide. <laughs> oh, my. So, so he was copying an episode of CSI, and if the cactus hadn't been there, he might have gotten away with it, but the cactus snagged the gun, and it turned out it was a suicide. Huh. Well, I mean, that's good thinking. I, I remember a case several years ago where a person committed suicide with a sword in his back. Well, you can uh-huh. do a lot of things to yourself, but but a sword, which is generally about 36 to 40 inches long, I mean, they're long. Stabbing yourself yeah. through and through in the back is a little difficult. 
And but what was all said and done, the the sword was like a decorative sword. At the uh, at the end of the handle was a little knob. Well, you could see in the sheetrock there was a little knob imprint there. And if you measure the height, and he, so basically yeah. he put it against the wall and he shoved himself into it. You know, he put it, and then and then of course you know he 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 well fell forward and he died. And otherwise, it looks like someone stabbed him in the back with this big sword. But he had, yeah. he'd done it himself. Yep. But you got to put it's amazing all, all that what together. people do. Right, right. Well, yeah, exactly. Especially when, you know, they're looking for the insurance for, uh, you know, for the family and stuff like that. So, uh, right. so, so, you know, one of the things I was going to ask you, like, it was a primary use of this book. Of course, you're using it as a teaching aid. But what we've talked about, you know, so far on, on this show is that this book actually is a, is, is a really good resource for a multiple psychology parts of our investigation, suicide notes and profiling yeah. and things like that. There's a lot of stuff in here that a death investigator could really glean from. Yeah, it was sort of an accumulation of what I've been doing for the past couple of decades. Uh, for example, in the, in the behavioral profiling part, I took apart a case that I'd uh, written with a profiler. It was his case and his notes. And I, I give it, I, I demonstrate the steps in the chapter, here's, here's, now, now you, the reader, get a chance to think it through before you see what happens next. So, you know, you often read, you know, profiling books are out there, but they don't really show you how it gets done. And this book shows you how it gets done. And you get the chance to think about stuff as we go along. Because uh, so, I really wanted to be practical, but as I mentioned, I don't like textbooks that much. I want it to be very readable as well. So there are a lot of cases but in among all the cases are the educational tools, and, and it really does bring together an awful lot of what I've done um, as a consultant, as a, a co-writer with profilers and other death investigators. I did one book where I, uh, the man exhumed people. He was a law professor. Um, it's called A Voice for the Dead, James Starrs. And we did, we did his exhumation cases and, and took apart the investigations to see why were errors made, why did pe- people, uh, for example, why did they think Jesse James had faked his death and escaped? So can we actually determine that Jesse James is really in his grave or, um, you know, things like that. So thanks to him, I got to do these exhumations and, um, uh, we did uh, autopsies, of all, both a psychological autopsy and a reg- regular autopsies, re-autopsies. I got to be in on a lot of that, which was, was fantastic. So that feeds into what I know uh, and was able to put into this book. So, yeah, it's, it's multifaceted for sure. And some of it really is about the work that I've done, too. And so an investigator, coroner, medical examiner, investigator, even police detective, they're able to take this, even though it's kind of a textbook form, it really isn't just textbook. A person could take it and read it themselves, chapter or or section, and glean a lot of information from it without having necessarily to set in your class. Is that right? Right. Right. Yeah, I really wanted it to be a subject matter book, not a textbook like with you know, questions and answers sure. and the kind of thing you'd usually get in a college class. I wanted it to be a very readable book for anyone interested in this. Also a book that anyone who's in, in e- either of these occupations or aspires to be 
as well as something I could use in my class. I wanted it to serve a lot of purposes. Right, right, right. So, well, it's a fascinating book. I, w- I want to switch gears just a second to the uh, book you've written, maybe, what, two books on serial killers? One on BTK, but I think you've written one just on well, I've written about, I've written about 10 books on serial killers. Okay, but okay, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I, I knew there was a couple of them. So, so, of course, we can't get into all of them, but serial killers... Uh, yeah, you know, obviously that fascinates you. Uh, is it the psychology of the of the serial killer themselves or the planning? You know, what is what fascinates you so much about them that you've wrote so much about them? Well, um, it's I guess it, they're really quite diverse. I mean, there's a myth that they're they're all the same and they're, they're all motivated by sex and and they all have victim types and blah blah blah. I'm really interested in all the differences that uh, the different motives, the different developmental trajectories of, of these various people. But the one I did with um, BTK was with him. It was a five-year project where I worked with him to write his, uh, what I call guided autobiography. And by that, I mean, it wasn't the typical journalist who interviews serial killers, just lets them blather on and on about blah, blah, blah. Um, I wanted to be able to take whatever he wanted to say and use it for criminology, forensic psychology, and law enforcement. So I, I aimed my questions and I shaped his narrative toward the end of teaching us about how he developed from a, a basic American Midwestern boy who didn't have any deprivations or abuse or anything into a serial killer. Uh, and, and he started his aspirations when he was 14 years old, uh, before anyone even was thinking much about serial killers. It was it was back in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, so what what was it? And I I was very I was you know he was pretty um, forthcoming. The, the letters I mean I have hundreds and hundreds of pages of letters from him. We talked on the phone every week. I visited him. Uh, I got lots and lots of detail. And he he was really interested in exploring it as well, which is not to say he didn't lie and manipulate. Of course he did, but that's part of it. I'm looking at everything. Uh, it, it's not for me about him telling the truth as much as it's about what does he say, how does he say it, when does he contradict himself, what are his blind spots, what are his what what does he use to try to manipulate me and and employ some impression management. So I was really fascinated by that particular. Uh, kind of study of somebody up close like that after all the stuff that I had done. Uh, I did write one book called The Mind of a Murderer where I looked back over the past century at the, the very few cases of mental health experts who had taken the time to really dive deep with one of these cases of either a mass murderer or a serial killer, extreme offenders, as I, I sort of put them all together. And to, and they really spent the time to try to find out how did this person become like this so that we can really try to understand this. And so it's not a trend analysis like you typically see in criminology. It's really case analysis in, in the most intense kind of way. Very few people can take the time to do this because um, it's expensive, it's time-consuming. Um, but those that have been able to do it have given us an awful lot, and I used them as my role models to do this thing with with uh, Dennis Rader, the BTK killer from Wichita. 
Now, did what actually just the, the short version, I guess, but what actually got him interested in at such a young age in in murder? What what started fascinating him down that road? Well, he he became eroticized by playing with ropes, so ropes became his fetish object, and he would tie ropes around his waist and and bring himself to orgasm that way. Um, he also liked the idea of controlling girls because girls made him extremely uncomfortable, and so he would imagine them trapped, girl traps is what he called them. And then he began to to uh, steal his father's true crime detective magazines from under the car seat, and uh, it was the Harvey Glattman case was probably the first one, and Harvey Glattman had po- in the 1950s had posed as a photographer for true crime magazines, and he would invite these aspiring models to be photographed, and he would, you know, make them get tied up, and then once they were bound, he would tell them he was going to kill them so he could get photographs of genuine terror. Well, those photographs, and he got caught, obviously, but those photographs obviously made their way onto the front page of a true crime magazine, and Raider saw that, and it just that image of a woman completely bound by ropes, terrified and totally under control, steered itself into his budding sexuality at the age of 14 that became a big thing for him to aspire to be. Not long after, he read about H.H. Holmes, the Chicago serial killer, who's gotten a lot of press lately, and um, he, he imagined all these torture instruments, not in a, in a hotel in Chicago like Holmes had, but in a barn in Kansas. So his fantasy life was quite vivid, and it had a lot to do with keeping women under control, and in particular, binding with ropes. Well, and I don't want to walk down this path too far because it's way off topic for death investigation, but I, I just have to ask this question. The more I've, not only what you just said, and of course, over the years, I've certainly studied some of this uh, sexual predator stuff, you know, just being of interest from being in its field. It seems to me, and, and, and here's why I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, but when a, when a kid is in their teens, adolescent teens, whatever they start having some type of feeling towards, in this case, it was ropes. It could be, you know, um, in Dahmer's case, uh, you know, he started dissecting cats, I think, or something. But whatever it starts during that puberty stage, and if they get sexually aroused because of this fear, this taboo, this whatever's going on in them, they if they they can start developing, maybe it's their mind, maybe it's not even something that they wish to have, but their mind starts pushing that towards sex. And as, as an adolescent, similar to adults in pornography, it gets to where this creates orgasm. More of this creates more orgasm. And then eventually, as they get older, it just develops into more fantasies they act out on. I mean, is that kind of how this develops? That's, that's pretty close. And, and to the point where they can't get aroused except with that. So now they've, they've almost created a trap for themselves. Um, and it doesn't have to be what we would ordinarily think of as a sexual object. I mean, it, it can be people have gotten things out of the Bible and it, that have become their fetish idea. Whatever it is that, that uh, arouses them while they're developing sexually, and that can be young. It can be younger than teenage years. Uh, that becomes something that makes them feel good, and, and especially if they want to 
you know, get away from a bad situation. For example, in, in Dahmer's case, his parents yelling at each other all the time. Um, and he actually, uh, it wasn't the cats. It was, um, he actually saw some pornography, of gay pornography, and he got ideas about having unconscious men because these men sometimes often had their eyes closed in the pictures. Oh. And, and so he developed a fantasy of, of um, knocking out a jogger, an attractive jogger he had seen. Uh, and so that was really how he ended up developing. And when he did bring a hitchhiker home and knocked him out and killed him, as he was dismembering the bodies, it, it aroused him. And now that has, that has steered into him. But, the, you know, for, for all of them, it's a gradual development of associating some object or situation or experience with their developing sexuality such that it becomes the primary thing that, that arouses them and then sometimes the exclusive thing. Right, and not so dissimilar to where, and I've talked to uh, people over the years where they've been abused, whether it be boy or girl. They've been abused sexually, let's say, by a boy, uh, by an uncle, or by a father, or by a stranger, where the abuse actually felt good, and now they're confused. Now they get interested in sex. Well, their only sexual was, let's say, with another man. Well, then they grow up, and they end up, uh, you know, uh, being homosexual, I guess, where where maybe they wouldn't have been had they not been exposed to that at that developmental age. So, well, so, I don't know about the their sexuality because everybody's you know developmentally different in that way. But what it, what arouses them certainly is part of their sexual development, and sometimes spankings, beatings, uh, being bound in some way. Um, being abused in some way does then become part of their fantasy life. Yes. Right. Yeah, that, that's very interesting, which can also be part of, you know, we're looking at going back to death investigation, serial killers have their reasons. Some of them are not sex. Not all of it is sex. But uh, those sexual predators, that's that's part of, of their uh, uh, their makeup or their, their draw to, to continue to kill. Some of it's to get away with it, but some of it is because the killing itself is erotic to them. Yeah, and then it becomes an addiction. I mean, dopamine in the brain becomes, you know, entangled in it, and and the more they do it, the more they want to do it. So, um, yeah, and I actually have a a chapter in this book, Motives, because I want to go through um, the fact that we, we have a lot of different motives for people who become serial killers. It isn't just sex, sex, you know, there's greed, there's power, there's anger, there's revenge, there's all kinds of stuff. So I'd actually go through that as well, because anyone who's doing a death investigation involving behavioral profiling needs to understand the the different types of patterns that you're looking at, not just the sexually compelled one. Because something like um, greed doesn't become necessarily addictive, but the the sexual predators, they're the ones who have the addiction. And, And when it develops into an addiction, they're the ones who probably are not going to stop I mean, they, they talk about Dennis Rader, for example, because he went so long without killing. Um, he stopped in 1991. Um, he got away with this for 30 years, but he did, he did, was always thinking about it. He broke into many homes. There were people, he gave me a list of 55 potential projects, as he calls them, 
that just the people didn't come home or, or he didn't have the time he needed or whatever. So he might have killed 10, but he actually aimed for 55. And that's the kind of thing you want to understand is, is these people who are compelled by the, the need to do this and then what kinds of patterns are we looking at in order to predict when and where they'll strike again. Yeah, yeah. Well, Catherine, you are a wealth of information, and I wish I could talk to you for the rest of the day here um, <laughs> because you are so fascinating, and and you you know you're teaching us so much. But but we're getting close on our time here, so obviously I, I will let you go. Uh, you're, the book Psychology of Death Investigation. There's going to be a link to that book in our show notes, so the listener can can go to this uh, show notes of this episode and be able to link over and 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 either read more about the book or possibly even purchase the book. Uh, it's it's a great resource to have um some of the other uh, books that they can link to probably find on amazon but i'll link to your website too um your your website is um just katherineramsland.com right that's right yeah they can find me on facebook i do much more stuff on facebook yeah because i always post my psychology today blogs on facebook and i in fact i did i posted a review of homicidal poisoning textbook today so people might be interested in that as well i do a lot of book reviews on my blog and i do a lot of case analysis yeah yeah well very very uh large amount of topics to choose from in the book so 62 books now and so i you know the we we could read for a year and and not get them all in so uh but but no these these are all fascinating and i appreciate that you taking the time to talk to us about this because i i know for one i've learned and i'm sure my listeners have learned as well uh, and they can contact you at your website if they have any questions uh we'll just send them there and they can maybe will contact you there or something like that so uh dr ramsell again i appreciate your time thank you very much for coming on and talking to us well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. I'm right back with you here. Dr. Ramsland, thank you again for being on the show. Wasn't she fascinating? She's a great conversationalist, easy to talk to, uh, easy to have a conversation with about this topic. And obviously it's because she is an expert uh, in all the things that we talked about today. And we can only just scratch the surface on some of these things. I, I wish my, we could have the show to be about four and a half hours, uh, but you know, we can't have a four and a half hour podcast. I think there are some out there, but I think I would lose you pretty quickly if we tried that. So, but anyway, again, I, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Lots and lots of great information. This is a great book. And, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I, I just want to provide you with the, the ideas and the resources that are out there to help you do a better job and to learn more about what your job is. And this is one of those resources that I highly recommend. I think it is fantastic. So again, you can find the links to it in the show notes of this episode and you can purchase it from there or you can just find out more about it. Maybe you just want to to learn more about her or more about the book. So uh, in closing here, let me just, again, thank you uh, for being a loyal podcast listener. If you're interested in training of any kind, you can go to the website, cornertalk.com or Death Investigation Training Academy, either one, and you can look at our e-learning you can also look at some of the classes that we're having. We're in the new academy now. Uh, we have a lot of on-site training if you can make your way to Missouri. So all of that stuff is there. You can go look at that either on our e-learning or our current class schedule. And anything I can do for you, let me know. Uh, it is January 2018. We got a year ahead of us. There's a lot of things we can accomplish. Uh, if you haven't totally booked your conference speakers yet, I'm interested in, of course, helping you with your conference if possible as well. So anything I can do 
for you to help in 2018? Uh, That's my goal, to help you be a better investigator. So again, find a way to be a blessing. I'm not going to end that. 2018 is a year to bless somebody. I'm going to remind you of that every single week. If you're still listening, then you know I'm going to remind you of that. Until next week, everybody, please be safe. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com and be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue.